I find it shocking and uh, really disappointing, of course. I think he's done uh, uh, the wrong thing. Um, I've heard from many of my friends in the UK, including a lot of conservative party members, by the way, who have used the phrase utter disgust. And some of the young people there feel as if their generation's been stabbed in the back. I mean, it's really, it's really shocking to me. But again, the fossil fuel companies have used their wealth and influence and political connections to slow things down and they fight tooth and nail against anything that would reduce the burning of oil and gas and coal. And they, they're much better at capturing politicians than they are at capturing emissions. Uh, and you can sometimes tell when they've captured one. Ain't that the truth? Hello, and welcome to the Baseload Podcast. My name is Ben Beatty, and I find it shocking. This is the first clip of Al Gore I've used in 19 episodes. Mr. Gore, obviously disappointed at the news, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is walking back some net zero policies. It's nice to see some acknowledgement of reality, even through the distorted lens of Mr. Sunak. But I can't see this having a great effect on either the climate or the progress of green idealism. First, here's the context. And when our share of global emissions is less than 1%, how can it be right that British citizens are now being told to sacrifice even more than others? Because the risk here for those of us who care about reaching net zero, as I do, is simple. If we continue down this path, we risk losing the consent of the British people. And the resulting backlash would not just be against specific policies, but against the wider mission itself, meaning we might never achieve our goal. That's why we have to do things differently. We need sensible green leadership. It won't be easy, and it will require a wholly new kind of politics. A politics that is transparent and the space for a better, more honest debate about how we secure the country's long-term interests. Michael Liebreich wrote a piece on LinkedIn about this. He says, let's look at the substance of what Sunak announced. He has blocked proposals to tax meat and flights, to force each house to have seven bins for recycling and to let strangers into our homes to rip out our boilers. Scandal. Does he not care about climate change? But wait. There were no such proposals. It's a trap for Labor. Oppose Sunak's net zero reset and they become the party of meat taxes, holiday taxes, seven bins and forced boiler removals. Sunak also announced, of course, that he was pushing back the dates for banning internal combustion engine car and gas boiler sales. This is more troubling because now we are talking real changes to real policy in areas where the UK needs to see hundreds of billions of pounds of investment to get to net zero. So how do we do that? What is our new approach to achieving net zero? Well, first, we need to change the debate. We're stuck between two extremes. Those who want to abandon net zero altogether because the costs are too high, the burdens too great. They don't accept the overwhelming evidence for climate change at all. Or maybe, just maybe, we don't accept the dog whistling ridiculous rubbish that's promoted by you guys. Now, all I can say is that from what I've seen that's been put on the table, absolutely not. There's no way I'd support net zero emissions because it seems like it's just another idea to help people who are guilty about carbon emissions uh, net off their sins by sending the bill to to country areas which is exactly what we've done so far this is not a this is not a, a forecast of doom it's a it's actually the history of how we've reduced our emissions the way we've reduced carbon emissions in australia to date has been by locking up whole lots of land in rural australia shutting down job opportunities, stripping property rights away from farmers, while emissions in the cities have gone up. Matt Canavan on the Guardian Australia podcast in July 2021. Still one of the best uh, interviews in the lion's den that I've heard to date. I didn't realise that with you. Do you not actually accept the climate science? Oh, I, I do accept there's a link. I'm happy to talk about it too. There is a link. Obviously, there's a link between carbon emissions and temperature. I think that it's massively over-exaggerated. And what does Ms. Catherine Murphy have to say about the uh, climate change? This is literally whether we live or die, whether or not life can be sustained on the planet and whether or not the level of prosperity that I have enjoyed, that Adam has enjoyed, that we hope to bequeath to our kids continues you know, we are the most, you know, one of the most carbon intensive economies in the world. We are sitting ducks, literally. And then there are others who argue with an ideological zeal 
We must move even faster and go even further, no matter the cost or disruption to people's lives, and regardless of how much quicker we're already moving than any other country. Ideological zeal? No way. We should just put aside the last 10 years of denial and dysfunction and get on with the job of getting more renewable energy into the system, storing it, firming it when we need to at night. The Energy Minister Bowen is a very stupid man with a capital S. <laughs> Alan Jones not holding back there on his uh, assessment of our current Energy Minister. The current policy driving Australians into the ground is our 43% emissions reduction commitment to the Paris Agreement, realised by attempts to reach net zero by 2050 and achieve 82% renewable electricity by 2030. The people who want this to happen fall into what I believe are several groups. First, there's the folks who actually think that forcing a huge amount of wind and solar into the grid will have positive results. That would be lower electricity prices, an improved economy, milder summers, predictable rainfall, stable sea level, and that climate crisis will be avoided as a result. So many good things, right? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Another group believe the transition will cost an absolute fortune, but it's necessary to avert climate catastrophe. Therefore, it must be done regardless of the cost. There's another group who, in my opinion, see authoritarian mandates for widespread control of emissions as an opportunity to be exploited, a means to an end, with the goal being greater control of global financial markets and governments. We'll leave that third group for now and focus on the second group, people who I believe completely understand that this green transition is a massive cost on consumers, but desperately want it to happen. To them, the cost is worth it. Unfortunately, these folks are often well regarded and their opinions and insights on energy completely trusted. This makes them relatively influential. So when they mislead their audience, even by accident, they debase the entire debate. One example of this inaccurate and misleading information was generated recently by Alan O'Neill, a commentator on the popular What Clarity blog and somebody who should know better. In a discussion about the very low demand seen by the South Australian grid on days with mild temperature, not hot, not cold, and good solar conditions, he wrote this. Good illustration of the flexibility of large-scale solar and no doubt wind responding by the price mechanism to the inflexibility of its small-scale rooftop PV cousin. Solar's primary characteristic is that it comes online when the sun shines and then goes off. The output of solar panels is completely 100% tied to the sun and therefore by definition is completely inflexible. Similar for wind turbines and the local wind conditions. Flexible implies a range of motion, the ability to bend and be pliable. Referring to wind and solar as flexible is a classic case of the renewables industry abusing the language. Alan, please do better. Another example I came across is from a lady called Catherine Woodthorpe, president of an organisation called the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. I've been a professional engineer for 20 years and I've never heard of it. From the, from the Academy's website, it describes Catherine has been a professional director for over 20 years. And uh, from Wikipedia, it appears Catherine started out in chemistry. Okay, that's great. Here's what she says about the Australian electricity grid on the Renew a Comedy podcast. What would a 2035 net zero target require of the grid to allow the rest of the economy to follow in behind? Well, it clearly requires accelerating um, the amount of renewables we have in the grid, the amount of firming that we have in the grid, whether that's through predominantly through batteries, but things like solar concentrating thermal also provide firming. Um, it needs, and, and absolutely the likes of AEMO and others are completely cognizant of this and working hard and fast to, to get there as well. But there are new technologies coming on board, or more importantly, old technologies are getting improved. So solar PV is continuing to improve in its efficiency. Um, solar concentrating thermal becomes um, is coming into a price range that's now um, feasible to put that into the grid. Um, so we have the technology, it's just the will to implement and it take, will take a lot of work. We're not pretending it's easy, but it needs to be done. Now, people who listen to me on this podcast know I believe that everything Woodthorpe said there is complete horseshit. The premise of the interview on Renewal Comedy is that the Australian Academy of Technology and Sciences believes Australia must pursue net zero by 2035. Let me read from the website. 
The Academy is calling for a national effort across all Australian sectors, governments and industries to set an ambitious benchmark for innovation which will equip the nation to become the renewable energy superpower it aspires to be. The science is unequivocal. The climate-induced catastrophes are irrefutable. ATSE calls for leaders across every Australian sector to join us in making Australia a front-runner amongst global peers in setting an ambitious target of net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2035. This science-based target will set a critical benchmark for Australian action, incentivising investment, applying innovative solutions and giving a clear signpost to industry and governments to drive rapid deployment of existing and mature low-carbon technologies, as well as develop and roll out emerging technologies and exports. To meet this ambition, with the federal government in the driver's seat, Australia should prioritise upskilling our workforce and develop and urgently apply evidence-based solutions across all industry sectors, particularly in energy, transportation, manufacturing, construction, minerals and agriculture. Meeting this target will be a monumental challenge, but with immediate and large-scale action to invest in skills and infrastructure, as well as political, policy and regulatory support at all levels, it is achievable, said Dr Woodthorpe. Is it everybody at the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering who believes this, or just the elites? Roger Pielke Jr. is an American scientist who writes about politics and climate while researching extreme weather events and the IPCC. He was a guest on the COB Tuesday podcast recently. If you just look at the discourse, and when we see this from Guterres, um, who's the UN Secretary General, um, talking about, you know, it, it, it's code red for the planet, global boiling. There is this, there's this political idea, this, this theory of change out there that we need to scare the bejesus out of people and then they'll get politically motivated. Um, and we see this in a lot of discourses. And the reality is, if you want to decarbonize a global society, that's a century-long project. And you're not going to keep people scared for a century. And he's right. A culture of fear permeates the energy debate. Let me, let me rephrase. A culture of promoting fear permeates the energy debate. I don't think many of these people who are uh, promoting wind and solar extreme policies actually believe in these scenarios of catastrophe that are predicted for the future. Or at least they know that it's going to cost a whole lot more to try and do it and that there will be no effect on the climate. It should be relatively simple for everybody to agree that improving the lives of people now who are in real distress should be the priority. But instead, we get policy that will supposedly prevent some theoretical catastrophe in the future, a scenario itself that is increasingly contested and with the obvious problem that our emissions are of no consequence and cannot change anything. If you want to replace the world's consumption of fossil fuels, then we will need to deploy, starting about six months ago, about one nuclear power plant equivalent of carbon-free energy every day from now to 2050, while at the same time retiring an equivalent amount of fossil fuels. I recommend this COB Tuesday episode to everybody. As I said to a friend, it is a series of truth bombs, all of it presented clearly and with a set of slides that are linked with the episode. Pilka Jr.'s Substack is a must-read also. The background to what he's saying is that a review of the CO2 emissions pathways used in Earth system models that predict future atmospheric temperature is underway. And the results are, no surprise, that predictions of future global temperature rise are getting lower. The difference between the RCP 8.5, which is way up there, 4.5 to 5 degrees, and the new where we think we're headed, around two degrees, is massive. The change in perspective of the climate community itself on where we're headed and what that implies for climate change is going to, and this is not an exaggeration, it's going to revolutionize how we think and talk about climate policy. Climate futures, things can still change, but climate futures today are much less apocalyptic than they were five years ago. And the world has not gotten its arm around this. We still have the head of the UN talking about global boiling. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. I know who I find more believable. So if the climate science is updating its scenarios, and lots of people seem to know about it, even I've heard about it here in Brisbane, Australia, why can't this information start to filter its way into policy? Through the media, the bureaucracies, the academics, the professionals. If the apocalyptic scenarios are bullshit, why are we still subject to fear-mongering? 
does Woodthorpe and those in her organisation have any capability to keep up to date with the science? ATSI's unique in that we spread across not just academia but deeply into industry and uh, government scientists as well. So we have some 900 fellows uh, or just shy of 900 fellows, all of whom are leaders in their fields of science, applied science, technology and engineering. Perhaps Pilkey Jr. could help them out. All right, so here's the three things you ought to know about climate and energy. Um, The global energy transition has not yet started. Um, Second, extreme weather is widely misrepresented, um, unfortunately, by scientists and in the media. And the last one is a big one. And the world of discussions of climate science and policy is going to change on our watch in the next couple years. Uh, The climate scenarios that are widely used in research and policy are out of date. The climate community recognizes this. There's going to be new ones. It's going to dramatically shift how we talk about this issue. Over time, this podcast has evolved into four main sections. The first section, the opener, sets the scene, and I contrast some of the dumb things our energy decision makers say against facts and logic from more sane contributors, in my opinion anyway. The second segment contains more of a monologue and editorial with a few pieces thrown in. A third is me interrupting and fact-checking an interview, usually courtesy of the ABC or similar. And the fourth is an interview, if I've been lucky enough to get somebody to come on the show. Some of these monologues are right ahead of time because it's much easier to edit when you don't stop and pause to consider the next thought and it's much better without the ums and ahs. Now, I'd written a monologue before the events in the Middle East, but the atrocities and the subsequent public celebration and sympathising has disturbed me deeply and what I'd written seemed banal and irrelevant. Listening to Australian politicians elected to represent their community come to the very edge of saying the Jews deserve it disgusts me to my core. Thankfully, there are very few of these politicians, and hopefully even less of them in the future. This is a global historical turning point. You will remember where you were and what you were doing on 7th of October, 2023. As a result of this, I guess all of the above, I realise that telling the truth is the single most important act anybody can do. I suppose I always knew it and deemed it important. But these events have elevated telling the truth above every other concern. Every good deed is based on truth, and all evil is based on a distortion of the truth. And even if you can't do anything else, you can still tell the truth. I see a schism opening in the world, a rift between those who want the truth, who cherish and nurture the truth, and others who deny truth and facts, who employ illogical arguments to support their ideology. This is literally whether we live or die, whether or not life can be sustained on the planet. Keeping global warming to less than two degrees, well less than two degrees, preferably 1.5. And if we don't manage to do that, we may as well say goodbye to the reef. The unprecedented fire events that we've had recently will become every other year, and large parts of Australia will become both uninsurable and unlivable. $387 billion would be the cost to replace the coal-fired power in Australia with nuclear. We are seeing what the extremes of bad ideology do to people not just in the religious-political mess between Jews and the Arabs, but in the anti-human degrowth insanity of other extremist groups like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion and their enablers in politics and media. It's futile to argue facts and logic with ideologues. These people do not want answers. To them, facts are irrelevant and logic is abandoned, unnecessary, discarded. The entire concept of net zero is destructive and dangerous. The justification used is that climate catastrophe must be averted or humans will perish from the earth. This is nuts. How does anybody make these claims with a straight face? Well, get on YouTube or Rumble and watch the eyes of these people as they say outrageous things. This is fanaticism. There is no debating these people. They cannot be dissuaded. Ignorance is not their problem. Knowledge is not lacking. Last episode, I pointed out patches of civil unrest occurring as a result of the implementation of net zero policies, and this is just the start. I'm afraid that the situation in the Middle East has turned up the temperature. Many more people suddenly realise there are savages living amongst them, people whose hatred and violence hides just beneath a placid and compliant surface. There are many side effects to this awakening, and one of them is a heightening of senses as the realisation grows that danger is close. This heightened awareness makes people generally more sensitive to lies and obfuscation, 
And this comes on top of the big pharma COVID era and the voice referendum, big tech censorship. You know, anything else you care to mention? Who lies to us the most? When politicians, media, corporates, celebrities, academics all tell us that net zero measures are necessary to save us from global catastrophe, as they drive us into higher living costs, restrict our freedoms, tighten the screws on our lives, more people will notice and more people will ask questions. And as they ask more questions and they are lied to even more, the distrust and scepticism will grow. As I record this, we are paying around $2.30 per litre for unleaded petrol and still over $2 per litre for diesel. Australia imports 25% of its refined liquid fuels from Singapore. And guess where Singapore gets 65% of its crude oil? You got it, the Middle East. Our energy security just took another hit. And we can expect petrol, petrol prices to remain above $2 per litre forever. It's the new low. We have corporations, councils, state governments and the feds locking taxpayers into long-term contracts with increasingly expensive wind and solar, telling us it's cheaper while they throw taxpayer money at transmission, batteries and subsidies to entice parasitic foreign investment that pays no royalties, employs few people and gives no consideration to the farmers and communities interrupted. The transmission cost alone is hideous. A representative from the Marinus Link developers boldly stating on the Renew a Comedy podcast that Tasmanians would be exposed to as much cost as they can bear. As a result of the multi-billion dollar transmission line now almost guaranteed by Mr Bowen's taxpayer funding. The challenge for us all, if we care to, is to identify who is telling the truth. Is it Chris Bowen, Energy Minister? Is it Daniel Westerman, Head of the Australian Energy Market Operator? Is it Catherine Murphy at The Guardian or Simon Holmes at Court, the renewables activist? Is it Claire Savage or Anna Collier, heads of the AER and the AEMC, respectively? Is it the energy ministers of the various states, D'Ambrosio, Debrenny, Sharp, Coutsantonis? Because these are the individuals now making decisions, or failing to make them, that are rapidly sending this country's energy security down the drain with the fallacy that a wind and solar-based electricity system will both result in lower costs and save the world. We are going to massively increase our renewable share, as we absolutely have to, if we are going to play our role in arresting climate change. Who is AMO acting in the best interests of? I'm really clear that AMO's role is to ensure safe, reliable and affordable energy today and to enable the energy transition for the benefit of all Australians. The Coalition at the moment is running a jihad about transmission. So what do we have to do? Quick recap, we have to replace fossil fuels. What do we replace them with? So Griffith put it very succinctly, we need to electrify everything. And we electrify everything with renewables and those things that we can't electrify, like perhaps making steel or making fertiliser, we make green hydrogen. At this time, we're estimating that household prices could rise between 20 and 22%, depending on where you live. Indigenous Australians have a critical role to play in the energy transition. None of this happened by accident. It required ambitious renewable energy targets, a range of policies to support renewables like Australia's largest reverse auction, and over half a billion dollars to unlock all six of Victoria's renewable energy zones. Who of us would have thought that the Queensland government traditionally known as a, a dominant player in the fossil fuel market, would appoint a Minister for Renewables and Hydrogen. But what it really does highlight is the challenges that New South Wales will face when it comes to energy security and energy transition in coming years. We took to the um, election a, a policy of decarbonisation, electrification and incentivising electric vehicles in South Australia and we're committed to continuing to do that. Are these people basing their decisions on a solid foundation of truth? I left out Tasmania, the Greens and the ACT. Tasmania, it's there, doesn't matter much. The Greens are repugnant and it's shameful they hold any semblance of power in our political system. No air time for their daft opinions. The ACT is irrelevant as their Green politicians crow about, an about their energy policy that accidentally sees softer price increases than the rest of the country. Go away, you imbeciles. What is needed... And the only way to reduce electricity prices is a return to baseload, specifically coal. All states need to stop incentivising rooftop solar and forcing large-scale wind and solar into the grid and halt all new transmission projects. New South Wales needs to give Araring, Mount Piper and Vales Point their own coal mines that are excluded from exporting coal, as well as develop the Narrabi gas project and connect it to the larger gas system. Queensland needs to open up more gas for development, fix the ridiculous overindulgent royalty scheme and come up with a way to secure domestic supply. I suggest there's a path for that, with a trade-off between domestic and export royalties. 
Queensland also needs to stop this crazy $60 billion plan to build the world's largest pumped hydro and a 500 kV transmission backbone up and down the coast. Victoria needs to replace its fading gas supply with onshore gas developments. The feds need to repeal the nuclear ban, include nuclear in the same subsidy schemes that wind and solar benefit from. You know, Arena, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Renewable Energy Target. They need to stop the Snowy 2 project, prevent semi-scheduled generators from accessing subsidies, disincentivize rooftop solar, include utilisation rates and efficiency as targets for network cost recovery, kill off the rewiring the nation quongo, and redirect the already promised money into a nuclear program. If all those actions were taken now, we might have secured our energy future by 2030. But we won't, which is why things will get worse, and it will take 30 years to unwind the madness we are subjecting ourselves to. You see, you can't argue with stupid people. When a stupid person is concerned, he starts behaving irrationally. This is renewable energy. Don't be afraid of it. Don't run away from it. The member for McMahon will put the. This is renewable energy. The energy minister Bowen is a very stupid man with a capital S. But worse, he's arrogant. You see, you can't argue with stupid people. When a stupid person is concerned, he starts behaving irrationally. This is renewable energy. Don't be afraid of it. Member Don't will... run away from it. The member Don't for McMahon will it. put the This is renewable down. energy. That finally, after 10 years of denial of delay, Order. we have a government with one energy the policy, the one climate change policy. Now he's saying that the proposal to convert coal-fired power sites into nuclear small modular reactors would cost... The government says that would cost $387 billion. In short, he's made a fool of himself. Alan Jones again not holding back. Uh, and where does the government get its information? Who advises the government and these bureaucrats? Catherine Woodthorpe again. So we have an um, incredibly broad range and deep range, um, deep knowledge of uh, the leaders of Australian science, technology and engineering who are bringing their, their minds to this problem. Um, they're leading in terms of making this call, but also working on a number of different um, papers and statements and and reviews that actually go into more depth in different sectors as to how we can achieve some of these um, some of these outcomes that we need to, including, for example, the energy transition. How does an advanced economy perform while integrating massive amounts of wind and solar into the grid? Well, let's f around and find out. Says our political, bureaucratic, academic, corporate, and elite leaders. And it's always the same old stuff. Ask any renewable energy advocate for a level playing field and you get a hard no. Why is that? Because the aim is not about the climate or the environment. Everybody knows that wind and solar and batteries have a short lifespan compared to coal, gas and nuclear. The end game for the renewables lobby is dependency on these short lifespan weather collectors. The short lifespan is the key factor. It ensures the industry stays in perpetual build mode. They don't care about the additional mining, environmental damage or emotional distress caused by the spider web of transmission lines, land clearing for solar or the bird kills of the wind turbines, or the, uh, the whales and the offshore systems, a level playing field will utterly destroy the wind and solar sector. Without subsidies, targets and levies, there is no renewables industry. That's certainly clear in the sector's strident opposition to any talk of repealing the nuclear ban, because what becomes after that? Well, the nuclear lobby will want taxpayer money to build nuclear. And at this stage, to be honest, I'm open to that. Because at least we'd end up with less land clearing, less predatory bird deaths, less whales at risk while creating more jobs and a stable power supply. I also believe that over the long lifespan of nuclear, it will be cheaper than coal, which is saying a lot because a coal-fired power station built on top of its own coal supply, excluded from export markets, is the cheapest electricity around. Literally dirt cheap. Take the latest information from the Clean Energy Regulator showing that large-scale generation certificates have increased to $54. This is a cost forced on retailers and passed on to consumers for intermittent electricity. We subsidise part-time power. Imagine that. How about instead we subsidise something useful, like an 80-year lifespan nuclear power plant with high capacity factor, high availability, high number of jobs that will add value to the economy, instead of the parasitic intermittent low-value wind and solar. Let's assume for a moment that no elected government is willing to be an adult and turn off the emissions reduction policies. In that case, I suggest that one of the first jobs after repealing the nuclear ban should be to open up the clean energy sector and include nuclear alongside wind and solar. If we can't have a level playing field across the full spectrum of electricity supply technologies, let's at least have equity, <laughs> my favourite phase, across the zero emissions sector. I'd even open up 
LGCs to existing hydro plants. Why not? Let's see how the wind and solar lobby fare in the face of competition from the supposedly most expensive form of energy there is. I can hear the whinging already. I'll leave it to Matt Canavan back in 2021, again in that uh, Catherine Murphy interview on the Guardian podcast, to say the truth. I mean, I don't put a lot of faith in the energy regulators in this country who have completely destroyed our energy competitiveness. Their advice, their incorrect advice, has completely destroyed our energy competitiveness as a nation. Campbell Newman, welcome to the Baseload Podcast. Great to be with you, Ben. I wanted to talk to you about the energy sector, but come at it from a slightly different angle. A lot of a lot of my critic is of the bureaucracies that uh, seem to be running this more and more the central planning angle. And in my in my dark and cynical musings, I come up with a an, an opener to set the scene for today's chat. And uh, I emailed it to you before, but I'll read it out, and it goes like this: Are we doomed? Uh, either from the net zero and the climate fanatics, or from climate change. I'm personally far more concerned about living under. The, uh, under the politics necessary to achieve net zero than I am about the weather, which we can't really control anyway. Well, not from anything we can do with policy in Australia. So where are we going with this? What, what, what do you see as a state of the world? We've talked a little bit as, as we're setting up for this, but um, well, let's see if you're as dark as I am because I think it's, uh, it's not I've, going I've well. got a fairly uh, bleak view of where things are going. And actually, it's an interesting thing you're saying that the path to net zero... Um, is is probably more scary than what it's meant to be um, dealing with because net zero in so many ways, clearly the agenda is one of control being exerted across our lives and you know, removal of freedoms, intrusion by government, um, dictates about what you can do, what you can't do, what you can buy, what you have access to. So I, I agree with that. I think it is quite scary. Now, I am, by the way, a climate sceptic uh, and I was a person who was prepared to believe in it 15 years ago. So I I actually, back in 07, 08, believed there was an issue that needed to be dealt with. And I've always been, by the way, a big believer in sustainability. I think it's a good thing to to change the way we live and run our society and use lower levels of precious raw materials. I think most people would think yeah. that. Yeah, I think, and that's something people can sign on to, yeah. All, and, I, and I used to talk about that. But anyway, I was prepared to believe that climate change was an issue 15 years ago and today I don't, and w- that's not what you want to talk about. But I just put that on the table to be upfront about it. But well, as I've, you're actually, saying, I've actually heard you say that before. Yeah. As anyway. you're saying, though, if we're if, putting aside then the issue about why we might be going to net zero, um, you know, so we just park the climate change, the reasons for it, but the approach that's being taken is really scary. And just to cap it off as a very personal um, sort of example for listeners, um, I've enjoyed driving a Jeep and there'll be people who laughing, going, Jeep, that's not a real four-wheel drive. But I've had Jeeps for 20 years and I've particularly enjoyed having a diesel Jeep. Well, the current one I've got is five and a half years old. I was in for a service a few months ago. Said to the guy casually, oh, what's the latest model? I'm probably looking to trade it in the next year or two. And he goes, well, you won't get a diesel, mate. I went, what? He said, they're not going to make them. An American diesel. They're not going to provide a diesel. And I... I still, I still can't believe it. But so that 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 is that has been driven by all this agenda, you know. And he said, well, you won't get a diesel Land Cruiser shirt soon as well. They're just not going to make them. And it's all emanating from this whole net zero push, particularly with corporates in the EU. And that's what and, I was going to say. That, that's an interesting so, analogy. So there you go. Yeah, like you know. So yeah, going for, for those who like to really go forward driving would would generally agree. That a diesel is the thing you really want when you when you're four wheel driving in remote areas in, in, yep. in Australia, and yet they won't make the product. I mean, what complete crazy shit is that? It's I agree. So uh, what I was going to say before is that like your your analogy there, your your example is one of those cases where it's not consumer led change. This is top down, top down. Top down you will, and then I've lost count of how many articles I've read in the last six months telling me that, oh, well, international air travel is going to be far more expensive as we go forward because of net zero and, you know, you might have... Just remember, we were told 
25, 30 years ago, the Maldives were di- disappearing. And they're we, still there. We keep getting told. I keep, I keep seeing Instagram uh, sort, of, uh, uh, you know, sort of people you know, bragging about their trips to the... To the Maldives. You and know. your politician buying a very expensive yeah, thing. And, and exactly, yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's more on the climate <laughs> change thing. So look, yeah, I think it's quite scary, this top-down, you will, you won't, this is the way we're going to live our lives. Yeah, I agree. So that's that's where I think the um, – and we ha- I don't think we've even seen the start of it yet. Uh, in a, in Australia in particular, we seem quite susceptible to it. Uh, we've – didn't kick up much of a stink really about the COVID lockdowns. Uh, we seem to be pushing back slightly against the the yes, which is another top down the uh, the voice. Uh, but energy wise, we seem to be uh, largely jumping on board, even though everyone knows that we're not going to do much to change the world's CO two content. That's not going to happen from Australia. But people seem very content to go with what the bureaucracies are saying. So, for example, the CSIRO says renewables are the cheapest. Now, AEMO says renewables are the cheapest. Mr. Bowen continues to rabbit on about renewables are the cheapest. Albo does it. Everyone does it. Um, but the evidence isn't there. So, yeah. why, well, why, so now, why aren't we believing well, the evidence that we well, see? Well, it's interesting what you've said. Just to quickly reflect on your lead in then, um, COVID was very worrying the way the Australian community... Um, rolled over and let the governments do terrible things to them and take away their freedoms. And that really surprised me, but it does show where the country is now. We're not free-thinking, you know, independent, you know, sort of, you know, to hell with government type people anymore uh, and, and people who like a laugh for that matter. Uh, we've, we've been, we've been uh, subjected to... To, to government sort of coercion and control over that three-year period, and it's a bit scary. Hopefully, um, people will wake up, and I think a lot of people did wake up in the end of, of COVID about what was going on. But um, let, let's go straight to the heart of the problem. You know, we, we are a resource-rich nation. We have a plentiful you know, supplies of fossil fuels and lots of other goodies that the world wants to buy. But just on fossil fuels, energy here should be uh, um, cheaper than any part of the world, really. That's that's the simple fact. And in the days where we had a coal-fired power station, base load, you know, run grid, and engineers running it rather than ideologues uh, and politicians, uh, we actually had stable, reliable, cheap electricity... And we keep getting told that renewables will make it cheaper. Well, people have got to wake up to the fact that it's got more and more and more expensive. And that is because of this transition. And there's not some magic moment where it all becomes cheap. The reason for the high cost of electricity now is because they're putting in renewable projects. And the price of solar energy at the gate of the solar power plant, yes, is cheap but then you have to just add the optional extra, extra, which is an extension cord to plug it back into the grid, or the pumped hydro to make sure that you can get um, electricity at 2am, or um, the battery. So, you know, people at AEMO are basically lying to the community when they say it's cheap. It, well, you know, if I'm kinder, it's just misleading, but it's leaving out the, you know, the optional extra is... Is, is the cost of um, the transmission, and on that's tongue-in-cheek. It, it isn't an optional extra. So the true cost of electricity is what we should be talking about, and the true cost is the cost of getting it to your home. The solar power plant, the wind farm, plus the associated um, high-voltage transmission line, the switchyards, all the stuff that's required to get it to your door, that's the only metric. The reason we're paying high prices is they're building thousands of kilometres of transmission lines, and that has been factored into the cost of your electricity. So I just say to your listeners, wake up. Wake up to your friends, your family. You are really being hoodwinked here now. This is a huge con job, um, and we will continue to pay and pay and pay. And what does it mean? It means high costs for your family, but also it means your jobs are being driven offshore. It means... Manufacturing jobs will disappear from this Australia. Anything that uses energy will go to jurisdictions where they don't have these mad policies. 
and, and many of them, if you like, are our competitors. Some of them, some cases, are also suppliers to us now. They, they're not into this caper. Uh, they're, not, they're not selling out their communities as our politicians are. And some excellent examples of that are companies like Brickworks. Um, we've seen, age, is, it, uh, is it Rio right off their Gladstone uh, smelter with the in, inability to cover the costs of the, uh, the carbon tax, the new one, the safeguard mechanism, which unfortunately the uh, LNP invented, but Chris Bowen has put on steroids uh, and is proud of it. Another one would be the, uh, the warnings from the diplomats of Japan and Korea. Mm. We say, please don't make our energy costs any higher. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. Well, just, just, just to go to, 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 to something that's current in the news at the time that we're doing this interview, there's an article in The Australian Today which talks about a deal, which we don't know the details of, a secret deal between the Victorian government and AGL, and the deal is to keep the Loyang... Um, Victorian coal-fired power plant going for some period of time into the future. That has to happen. Why? Because the renewables aren't in place. Why are they having to pay? Why are the taxpayers of Victoria through their government paying to keep a coal-fired power station going? Well, because the cost of wholesale power is, is, makes it uneconomic to run that coal-fired power station. But hang on a second, aren't Victorian consumers paying really high retail prices? Mm -hmm. So what do we know by that one story? Well, it's very, very clear. Um, the, the costs of electricity to Victorian consumers, the retail cost, is through the roof because, again, of transmission costs and other costs associated with putting in renewables as opposed to a proper free market where the, the wholesale price and just the existing infrastructure would be being used and the prices would be lower. So that in itself, it, it, if people join the dots, it shows exactly what's going on. I mean, literally government are paying to keep uh, a coal-fired power plant going because the, the wholesale price is uneconomic. I interrupt here to acknowledge that as an absolute novice, I managed to lose a section of the audio with that interview with Campbell. Uh, However, he graciously allowed me a do-over, uh, and we pick it up here. The focus of this podcast is on the energy, the transition, uh, something that I think is not going terribly well at all. And one of the reasons I don't think it's going very well is because the, the bureaucracies that are in charge of it or advising the, the politicians who are making the policies don't really push back on bad ideas. They seem to be all in on the, the net zero, the transition, the UN-inspired stuff. So... There's been some revelations recently. You might not be aware about the CSIRO's gen cost and AEMO's integrated system plan. And I think much of the faults in our policy uh, could have been moderated by better advice from the bureaucracies uh, if it was operating in the public interest. Other people I've spoken to have expressed dissatisfactions of some sections within the public service. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the performance of these bureaucracies? And, and how do we, if there are any problems with it, how do we identify it and fix it? Well, to be kind about it, it's a matter of groupthink that's going on. There's an orthodoxy that cannot and will not be challenged. To be uh, unkind, uh, potentially there are some people in there as well who are uh, bluntly uh, activists, and, and that's the problem. And then the overlay is you've got the political uh, people, um, all the politicians, state and federal, who uh, are meant to be you know, the protection, uh, the, the protection for the community, the guardians for the community, and they don't understand um, what's going on. It's very complex, and most of them are not, say, electrical engineers or even civil engineers, and so they don't know how to ask the right questions, and they get uh, completely BS'd. Um, I just reflect when I was in office and uh, we were um, in the subcommittee of Cabinet, which handles sort of budget matters, called CBRC, uh, you'd get um, the people from the electrically electrical supply industry in Queensland coming forward to make their case. And I tell you what, you know, even with my technical background, it was really hard to get to the bottom of what was really going on. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, you know, really, uh, I think, though, if politicians really wanted to do the right thing by the community, they just should be saying and demanding and setting the policy settings and the legislative requirements that... The foremost objective of the electricity supply system is cheap, reliable electricity. 
and it has to be benchmarked against best practice worldwide. And if you had those objectives, then the rest would follow. I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, and I think uh, one thing you're probably not aware of in the background, the there's a there's a thing called the National Electricity Objectives, which is meant to be the the pillars upon which we the the bureaucracies make decisions uh, about these things. That's what they're assessed against. So in that you've you've mentioned cost reliability and it's basically meant to set up the best thing for the consumer uh, but now we're going in and they're changing it to include emissions reduction now i think this is incredibly dangerous and and uh something that's an antithesis to making good decisions because we're making decisions on emissions reduction as if it's as important as the cost of living, as important as the reliability. How do we get through to the bureaucracy that the consumers are the best? How do I say it? Not their market, but they're, they're trying to support the consumers at the end of the day. That's, that's their sole purpose of being, right? The Australian, the public interest. How do we get through to the bureaucracy that public interest is the, is the well, main I thing? Well, I think the politicians should be saying, as I would say, I'm going to say right now, that these people running the supply system are crippling our country. That's what they're doing right now. And at the end of the day, the livelihood of Australia going forward in the decades to come depends on low-cost, reliable electricity, and this bunch uh, are going to really hurt the country economically. And it's time they woke up. I watched with horror the head of AMIO uh, a few weeks ago on TV uh, spruiking one morning, absolute rubbish about renewables being the cheapest form of electricity. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it needs also the education of journalists. And it was just like, you know, yes, at the gate of the solar farm, it's cheap. But it's not cheap when you consider the whole system cost of the enhancements to um, uh, the transmission system. So that's the problem when you've got journalists who cannot ask you know, the right questions, and I'm afraid the head of AMO won't tell the full story about what's going on. So, look, I, I don't like the idea of introducing the emissions reduction. Um, I probably, there are a few, you know, there are a few people, a few people who would agree with me on that. But, look, we have to benchmark ourselves against the competition. That's where it starts. It's no good saying, um, you know, that we're just going to try and be cheaper. We have to be cheaper. Otherwise, all we're doing is exporting any sort of value-added manufacturing, anything that is energy-intensive, to jurisdictions where the electricity price is cheaper. So it will go... You know, the, the great irony could be, for example, that um, um, some of these energy-intensive industries end up in, say, Vietnam or, say, India uh, or China, and they're then powered by Australian fossil fuels. That, that, that literally is probably happening. That's happening now with the EU. That's what they've done. They've exported manufacturing to China. Um, and yes, their books are looking good in terms of emission reduction, but it's over there. These are the dirty secrets of this whole thing. I'd point out that you're exactly right. So Europe solar industry now is calling for protectionism because they're saying they're being undercut by Chinese imported solar panels to the point where they're going out of business. Uh, and so now they no, don't just need subsidies. They don't just need uh, government protectionism. Uh, they're going to need mandates. So, oh, wait, we've got mandates already. Uh, but I agree with you. So I'd point out that your point that the other countries that are winning the energy battle are doing it with coal. And quite often they're doing it with Australian coal. So how come, how come we must have a, a higher cost of living to support uh, other countries' industry? Well, a higher cost of living and also exporting the jobs. I mean, it's madness. I mean, I just say to people who are listening to this a bit sceptical about what I'm saying, go and look at the, the, the sort of jurisdictions around the world that compete um, for, you know, manufacturing and look at their costs of energy. And, you know, like just within the United States, for example, there is a vast difference between California, which lines up really close to Australia in terms of energy prices, right, compared to, say, Wyoming or Texas, which have much, you know, Wyoming, Wyoming's probably, you know, the best, but, like, they have, they have <laughs> reliable, cheap electricity. And what's happening in the United States? 
people are decamping from, businesses are decamping from California and moving to low-cost energy jurisdictions within the states. Yep. And that's... That exactly shows you what's going to happen. Look, again, we've got, a, we've got a stack of people sitting in all parts of the bureaucracy and in politics who are part of the groupthink, who don't want to get it, who've never done a real day's work in a real business and you know, have always been on the public service sort of, uh, you know, teat, and they're the ones who are going to kill this country. They're responsible and... Uh, you know, they need to be held accountable. Some people in politics have got to hold them accountable and people in media have got to hold them accountable. That was gonna, exactly going to be my question. How do we, how do we turn it around? Does, does a, a general election, which might, say, put in a Peter Dutton with a Ted O'Brien as energy minister, does he do a, a clear out, a drain the swamp kind of activity? Or, well, or well, does he... well it's, it's, someone's got to actually stand up and really relentlessly make these points. But I'm afraid... You know, for example, in, the, the, in Queensland, the state LNP never talk about this stuff because they just want to get into government without causing any issues. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a sad thing that in, in the federal sphere um, we don't have too many politicians who are prepared to argue, push back against this sort of orthodoxy and say what the inevitable results of this. There are voices, but... Um, they, don't they get, get sidelined. They get sidelined. They really do. So, like, I mean, that, that's that's a problem. Mm. Right? I like. Um, I'm hoping to talk to Senator Matt Canavan sometime, uh, and and put some of these questions to him as well because I think he he's he's in the guts of it. He's one of the guys who does speak up about it. Well, he does. He does. There's a few. There's Rennick. There's there's Canavan. Probably Antic would have, uh, uh, you know, knowing his sort of philosophies. Uh, but it's it's got to get to be more mainstream. And, you know, you haven't asked me yet, but just to throw it in, I mean, this is why nuclear needs to be part of the discussion. Small modular reactors do need to be part of the discussion. Um, you know, um, and we're always told by Albo and Bowen that um, it doesn't stack up. Well, the problem there is that there's actually a ban. Right? There is a ban. It, it's in the federal environment law that says you cannot have nuclear power in Australia. Um, if they just get rid of the ban, then let's the, let the private sector actually do it. Now, then we've got to go back to AMIO, who need to be smoked out and start telling us the facts about the real costs. If you, for example, hypothetically, took out a coal-fired power station, could be in the Hunter be in uh, Latrobe Valley in Victoria, and you plonked in an SMR that then replaced the high carbon emissions. What's the cost that stuff. Yeah, yeah we, we said it's going in there and that's the cost of it. But all the transmission infrastructure, the switch yards, the transmission lines, they're all there. They just, they don't have to be, rep you don't need new infrastructure. You're just taking out, take one power station out, put another one in there. And then you line that up against solar and wind and vast... Yeah, you know, vast uh, kilometres of you also have the, You also have the effects of yeah. the local switchboard manufacturers, the service guys, the people who work in the plant, where you don't have car parks at solar farms or wind farms. No, but it, but, but anyway, we, what we're trying to do is just compare the real cost if you just got an SMR plugged into the Latrobe Valley for the coal-fired power station that's gone, using all the existing infrastructure, the sunk costs, if you like, versus the supposed cheap cost of solar or wind, but the vast new kilometres of, of, uh, of transmission lines, the new switch yards, everything, to get it into the grid. That's the real comparison. And again, I say, what are you frightened of? The people who are against it, that's simply ideological. The left of the Labor Party have been against nu nuclear for like, you know, 50 years and they just can't, they just can't let go of this whole thing. Where even people in the Labor Party, the AWU, who are far more sensible, the right of the Labor Party, are prepared to talk about it. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but uh, there's been a bit of a furore on social media. Just uh, last week, Mick DeBrenny, Queensland's Energy Minister, I think he's got climate change at the front of his title as well. Uh, he was making an address to the Smart Energy Council, one of the renewable energy lobbies, and he actually said the words... Um, I don't have it verbatim, but he said that we can't lift the moratorium on nuclear because it will damage the renewables industry. And yes, that's I exactly that. the ideological you're I talking saw, about. I, yeah, I did see that. He, I think he, he referred to being, you know, I, I think it was this, I think it was along the lines of it's the greatest threat to the renewables. 
Yeah, and you can see that from a mile off, exactly what you're mm. saying. Yeah. If, you, if you take out a coal plant, put in a nuclear plant, what's the difference in cost? Yeah. Because the you'll get the environmental benefits from the uh, the emissions reduction. If if you believe that that's an environmental benefit, then you should be after that. Uh, but if you're the the ideology bothers me, and the fact that, like you pointed out, AMO can't um, can't address that in an adult manner really really bothers me. Um, energy security. Energy security bothers me as well. Many things bother me. <laughs> I can see from the look on your face it might bother you too. How does how do the states go with energy security from a from a, a top down from a premier's perspective? Do you would you had any issues if say New South Wales decisions affected Queensland's energy security? How how would that sort of decision making process and thinking process go down? Well, that's an interesting one. I guess. As say Premier of Queensland, really my responsibilities, you know, uh, start and finish with the people of Queensland. So you know, I would have been up in arms about things that might have affected, you know, the reliability of you know of and you know of the system in Queensland. Well, say if a New South Wales decision to close Liddell and then Araring within a couple of years, and you, and you could see that this is obviously going to push the prices up for everybody because we're interconnected, that'd be something to speak out about, wouldn't it? Well, it would be, and you know, I guess bluntly, my position would be that you know, well, we're not we're not going to continue to pump um, our our electricity down the down the wire if it means there's going to be blackouts in Queensland. And you know, we we thought a few years ago that the states weren't very powerful, and then when COVID came along, we found actually there were some things that states could still do. So hypothetically, uh, is it possible for a state? To actually go well, look, I'm not. We're not going to do that. We're going to look after ourselves. You made these bad decisions. We'll pull out of the national energy market. And this was raised for Tasmania recently as well. They're, they're talking about that because they're worried about Marinus. Well, I, I, I don't give. Uh, you know, I could be cruder, but I don't give a toss about what happens in for the lights on in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, I care about the lights in Queensland being on, and and in, and again, cheap, <laughs> reliable power, and uh, you know. It, if, if our premier's got any guts, if, if, there's, if it looks like there's going to be impacts on the system, well, she should cut the cable, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's not what you do, but it's like, you, you know, we're not going to have... We shouldn't have blackouts in Queensland because of stupid decisions interstate. I mean, by the way, the Queensland government are perfectly capable of making their own stupid decisions with... Um, you know, the minister that... that oh, got, yeah, Dan well, by the way, it was interesting. By the way, I'll share this with you. I don't mind sharing this with you. I, I, um, my wife and I were in, in Biloela, so the heart of the sort of the coal fields and power generation, that part of the world, a few months ago, and we are talking to a gentleman in a cafe one morning and he'd been talking to Brenny. And, you know, Debrini had been making noise, you know, the whole government makes noise about we're going to shut this down and we're getting out of coal... But when Debrini spoke privately, one-on-one in Illawilla, he said, look, I'm here to make sure everyone understands that this ain't shutting down. You know, they walk <laughs> both sides of the street on this stuff. It's incredible, isn't it? Maybe, yeah. maybe he's not so silly. See, I met Mick uh, Debrini at a, at a bowls club. There was a, an info night on the Queensland energy plant, and he probably did a few of them. And I, I had a beer with him, and he's, and he's a nice enough bloke. You, I get it. He's, But uh, I think he's... It's his ideas that are bad. It's the ideas that are bad. and but They're fundamentally bad and they're driven by ideology and politics, not by what's right for Queensland. Yeah, correct, because he's, he, he's putting the, the priorities of his, of his unions and his political team ahead of the consumers of Queensland. Uh, anyway, that's a, that's a terrible way to go well, talk well, about well, people. Well, sadly, the sad thing about it is that the Labor Party is selling out you know, the actual members. The unions might have a particular view, but they're they're politicians too. It's it's an ideology they've latched onto. You know, they're not doing the right thing about um, blue collar workers in in these industries, whether it be in 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 coal mining or aluminium processing, nickel, whatever you name it, refineries. You know, they they're not doing the right thing by by the rank and file. And I'm quite happy to call that out. I mean, you know, if you're listening. You know what the Labor Party are doing to you? By deceit, they're exporting your jobs to you know, China, Vietnam, India. That's what they're doing to you. And it's about time, actually, 
the rank and file in those unions actually start to look closely because you know if you you won't have those jobs in decades to come if this continues for much longer. Even their ideas about turning Gladstone into a renewable hydrogen hub is just is just fantasy. No one's no one's buying hydrogen when it costs more than natural gas, when it costs four to five times the price of natural gas, you can't export it without turning it into ammonia and then converting it back again at the other end. It's a, the whole supply chain of well, renewable hydrogen is a, is a mess. Well, look, I, I've seen, um, you know, I've seen some real critiques on this in recent time that just point out how much of a, um, I suppose, leap that it, it would be. Um, so I'm quite, I'm quite sceptical. I mean... You know, hopefully at least something will happen there. I mean, because I, I, you know, I'd love to see you know a, a new a new industry, but I'll throw one in. Maybe this is a, maybe you'll this will make sense. Um, but yeah, when when I was in government, one of the things we were doing is we were funding uh, research into synthetic fuels, so using algae at the University of Queensland, and. You know, the thing about that, that's essentially carbon neutral. So you've got the algae gobbling up the CO2, um, then being used to produce, say, biodiesel, and, you you know, you burn that and CO2 back in, so you've got a cycle going, so mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. a virtuous circle. Now, the problem supposedly is it's too expensive in terms of... I can't remember the figures in terms of what it would... for equivalent barrel of oil, but it was more expensive. Now... Just as I said earlier on, we need to consider the entire system. If we just sort of suspend disbelief and say, well, okay, if we can produce biodiesel at a certain amount, maybe it's two or three times as expensive as the normal thing. But hang on a second. If we then look at the system, we have a vast infrastructure for storage and handling logistics for moving liquid fuels. We have fuel stations all around the country. We have fuel tanks around the country. We have fuel storage facilities at, at port terminals and the like. We have pipelines. If you take into account that's already there and you don't have to replicate it, in other words, you don't have to create a hydrogen handling infrastructure, would it actually stack up? And I'm really intrigued by that. So I guess what I wanted to convey today is I'm open to new ideas. I'm open to – I like sustainability – I don't necessarily believe in climate change and I think net zero is very dangerous. Small footprint's good. But I'm, I'm really, really keen to see technologies that actually reduce our footprint, our use of precious raw materials. So you know, how about that for a thought? Again, you have to look at the system. You can't just say a barrel of oil or a, barrel, you know, or, or, you know, or a tank full of diesel is more expensive at that point. You've got to look at the full cost to the consumer. And I think it's worth looking at. So... Why isn't the government you know, really trying to sort of rev that up uh, with that in mind? I'd like to see – and that's a good point. I'd like and, to s- and by the way, that's a bit of an argument again. Like why are we all betting on EVs? Mm. So we have to enhance the – we've got to have all the renewables, solar and wind. We've got to have the transmission lines. And then we've got all this deployed existing infrastructure, all these fuel stations that are no, no good anymore. Um, but we've, or we've got to convert them, we've got to have rapid charges, etc. We've got to enhance the distribution network to get the electricity there and to people's homes to charge their vehicles. What if we simply were looking at instead the cost of actually deploying synthetic renewable fuels? Locally made, which improves, Locally made. improves your energy security. Absolutely. Because I was reading, I don't know if you read um, Doomberg, but his latest piece was Australia-focused. And he's talking about the risk to Australia of only producing its, you know, 10% of its own fuels locally because we've been shutting down yeah. petrol yeah. refineries Absolutely. left, right and centre and we import it from and, uh, Japan, and Korea, And more blah, Singapore. blah, blah about politicians. Go, go look at you know, listeners, go and have a look at all the sort of the media over the last 10 years about, oh, fuel security, what's happened? It's just nothing. Hopeless, well, hopeless well, science. We're, apparently, we're I'm talking about all of them, by the way. Yep. You know, this isn't just directed at the Labor Party. You 100%, know, like, 100%. Yeah, it just all, yeah. You know, again, these things are happening because we've gone down a certain way, Ben. We've said we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that, and we're going to expense make that expensive. So why would you, why would you refine oil in Australia? Of course, you're not. That's why you're going to bring tanker loads from Singapore, who are somewhat more pragmatic. And amazingly enough, um, you, you mentioned the the EVs, but and harking back to your earlier point about the um, industries leaving uh, Europe and, and America, and you've got and Australia, and you've got a flooding of electric vehicles made in China coming now. 
And and we'll see that undercutting the Teslas and and, oh, and, and and we've got these politicians talking these fantasies about again manufacturing stuff here. We're gonna we get we've got all these wonderful minerals that are for, for the new economy. Well, we do. Well, you know the proof of the pudding is if you want to if you want to manufacture batteries in this in this country for this new uh, wonderful net zero revolution, this is what you need. You need the cheapest electricity. That, that is reliable and that has to be globally competitive. It's got to be at least as cheap as the Chinese. You've got to have industrial relations. I'm not saying you have to have pay people what they pay in China or Vietnam, but what you've got to do is you've actually got to have workplace flexibility so that management can actually get the productivity to compete with the Chinese in terms of units per labour out the door. Um, and you've actually got to have... Uh, regulations and, and you know planning law that allow you to quickly and efficiently build the factories to do this stuff. We don't have any of those things. Outlined- that's the bleak. That's the bleak view. So all this stuff from politicians about we're going to have this stuff, it ain't going to happen while we have these problems with our cost base. Campbell, you've perfectly outlined my three bugbears: the cost of energy, IR laws, and red tape. I think those three things are in a, are all not none of it's improving in Australia, and I and I don't see how we can fix it in the short well, term. Well, we've got a federal government. I mean, this is a bit by the by. We've got a federal government who stands by and says nothing, while the unions over in WA on the massive LNG projects, uh, basically uh, going you know threatening strike action, which is actually raising the cost of energy globally, and nothing's said about it. And it, so it destroys Australia's reputation as a reliable supplier while these unions hold not just Australia but the world to ransom. And, um, you know, that, we're seeing higher energy prices again. It's incredible, isn't it? Because when you think about Australia's position in the global economy, we're a resources supplier, we're, we're an energy supplier and companies out of Japan, um, governments of Japan and Korea are now uh, it's hitting European papers are all looking at Australia going, well, you're not very reliable. Uh, it might be because you're raising taxes or royalties or it might be because your unions are taking over, demanding uh, wh- whatever the conditions are. Um, how, does, how, would a, how do you think Australia's politicians should react to this downgrading in trust, I guess, of, of Australia as an energy supplier? Oh, I think it's really serious now. You know, it's pretty remarkable, for example, that the, the, the Japanese at high level, you know, ambassador level or government officials would start to say publicly um, they're worried about Australia's reliability. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, the Japanese are very nuanced, you know. And, they are and, reticent and, and, unlike, to make a unlike, splash. Unlike, your, <laughs> unlike the person you're interviewing, they're very, very nuanced, very subtle, but when they stand up and go, hey, there's a problem here, you know you've got a problem, you know, and, and we've got to listen to that. You know, like, I, again, for listeners, your prosperity is on the back of exports of iron ore, coal, LNG, and to a certain extent, agriculture. That's what holds this country up. You, know, you kick the, the props out, the pit props out, think of the mine shaft, kick the, kick the pit props out of LNG and coal, um, you start to look like uh, an impoverished nation. And that's what we'll be. You know, we, we really now have to wake up to ourselves about this sort of stuff. Campbell, you've been a, a gracious guest. On that on that note, which I hope is equally uh, identifying a problem and identifying an opportunity, uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.